there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Can you believe this? Quite a sight. We'll have to turn most of them away. There's barely enough room for a third of the lot. This is how chaos begins. Make sure not one of them gets inside the courthouse. Ah, it'll be all right. Mostly women in the crowd. That's what I'm worried about. Do you think he did it? All I can say is, I've had my fair share of moments when knocking my wife into an early grave seemed like a fine idea. (laughs) I've only been married a year. (laughs) Just you wait. What do you think they think? I'm not sure they know what they think yet. That's why they want to get inside the courthouse, hear the evidence like everyone else. Makes sense. Look, there he is. Here we go. Keep a steady line. Let no one cross you. Mr. Wallace, did you do it? Wife killer! There he is. The wolf in sheep's clothing. He's innocent. That's right. He's been framed. Mr. Wallace! Mr. Wallace! William Herbert Wallace had just been accused of killing his wife, Julia. The police painted a picture of a man who, loving the strategic draw of chess, may have planned his wife's murder using a similar methodology. But there was another viable suspect who was never truly considered a possibility, Richard Gordon Perry, a former associate of Williams. Perry basically became a ghost. And William was brought front and center. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on Julia Wallace. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Now, back to the mystifying case of Julia Wallace. Thursday. February 19, 1931, a month after the murder. The committal proceedings took place. In the United Kingdom, 
This refers to a hearing before a judge, who will decide whether the accused should have a trial before a jury or be given a sentence straight from the judge without a jury's verdict. At this stage, the prosecution, led by J.R. Bishop, called 35 witnesses to the stand. They included William's neighbors, the Johnstons. The chess club captain, Samuel Beatty. The milk boy, Alan Close. The many citizens William came in contact with the night of the murder. And several others. The clerk of the court took down all the testimonies by hand. And it amounted to about 50,000 words. Can anyone say carpal tunnel? Bishop gave his opening remarks on behalf of the prosecution and apparently made 18 misstatements about William and the events of the murder. These inaccuracies infuriated the head of William's defense, Sidney Schofield Allen. Objection, Your Honor. There is no evidence to support several of these statements. They are merely blatant suggestions. I can assure you, proper research has been done. Mr. Bishop is to present this case fairly, without bias. Wallace is on trial for his life, lest we forget. And Mr. Bishop has a duty to the Crown to present cold, hard facts, not statements that aim to prejudice. I protest wholeheartedly against this. I am uncertain how to proceed with my opening remarks if I am accused of such inaccuracies. The court was tense that day. Later, William gave his deposition. You have been charged with the willful murder of your wife, Julia Wallace. How do you plead? I plead not guilty to the charge made against me. And do you have any remarks? I do. I would like to say that my wife and I were married for 18 years and we were very happy. We had complete confidence in each other and great affection for one another. The accusation that I murdered her is monstrous. What could I possibly have gained? Nothing, I tell you, nothing but I have lost everything. I declare once more that I am completely innocent of this crime. The hearing lasted seven days. Then came the inquest, where professionals further examined Julia's body for evidence. Prior to the trial, Hector Monroe, part of William's defense team, was tasked with raising enough money to pay for defense costs. William admitted he only had 150 pounds in his bank account and two small endowment policies he could cash in. He ended up contributing 100 pounds. But his younger brother Joseph, who traveled from Southeast Asia, gave William 300 pounds. Joseph would be a huge support to William throughout the ordeal. William would also find support from his trade union, the Prudential Staff Union, which considered contributing to his defense fund. The executive council of the union decided to have a mock trial to figure out if and how much they would donate. After the mock trial, members voted unanimously that William was indeed innocent. So they contributed a generous portion to the W.H. Wallace Defense Fund. And this was a big deal because it was the first time a trade union supported a member who was not involved in a case regarding union activities. Well, this must have been a confidence boost for William. Yes, and he would need it. April 22, 1931, William's trial began at the St. George's Hall in Liverpool. The presiding judge was Justice Robert Alderson Wright, a stern and serious-looking fellow, if I may say so. Well, judges usually are. A man by the name of Roland Oliver served as the head of William's defense. Massive crowds stood out in the rain, desperately hoping to gain access to the court. And there were only about 300 seats, and several hundred people were turned away. In his signature dark suit, white collared shirt, and black tie, William observed the formalities of the court with interest until it was time to answer a question. 
William Herbert Wallace, how do you plead? Not guilty. Edward Hemmerd, the head prosecutor on behalf of the Crown, spoke first, and his speech lasted over two hours. Jeez, long-winded much? Well, then various witnesses were called to the stand. One of them was Samuel Beattie. Mr. Beattie, tell us what you remember from the night of January 20th, 1931. I remember getting a phone call at Cottle City Cafe, where I serve as captain of the Liverpool Chess Club. Who was the call from? A man claiming to be R.M. Qualtrough. Claiming to be? You did not believe he was who he said he was? No, that is not what I meant. He gave the name R.M. Qualtrough. Did you recognize the name? No. What about the voice? No. Can you describe the voice you heard? It was a strong, confident voice. A bit gruff, if I may say so. Did it sound at all like Mr. Wallace's voice? No, it did not. Can you be certain of that? The voice I heard sounded nothing like William's. The reason Hemmerd asked if R.M. Qualtro sounded like William was because there was a strong accusation by the prosecution that William was actually this made-up Qualtro. Right, and that he made the call, all part of his elaborate scheme. John Johnston, neighbor and friend to the Wallaces, was also questioned. Mr. Johnston, how would you describe William and Julia as a married couple? They were very loving with each other. Did you ever see them quarrel? I can't say that I have. Is that a firm no or a possible yes? I have not seen them quarrel. And how often would you see the two of them? My wife Florence and I would come over a couple evenings a month for tea and biscuits. William and Julia would play songs for us in the parlor. We very much enjoy their company. I see. And how familiar were you with Julia's physical ailments? I'm sorry? The victim was often ill. Were you not aware of this? Julia did have her fair share of colds. I imagine on account of a weak constitution. This frequency of colds might take a toll on a marriage. If one half is often ill, it could weigh heavily on the other. It didn't seem to bother William much. You mean he showed no concern for Julia's bouts of sickness? It didn't upset him, if that's what you're asking. Kind of husband does not feel some kind of empathy for his ailing wife. William has empathy. He just is not one to get emotional or plague himself with worries. Would you say he keeps a cold distance from those around him? No, no. William was not... is not cold. Thank you, Mr. Johnston. You may step down. The prosecution then called Mr. Johnston's wife, Florence. Mrs. Johnston, please describe for me the events of the night of Mrs. Wallace's murder, starting with the moment you saw Mr. Wallace that evening. John and I heard William outside the door. Which door? Well, the back door of his house. He couldn't get the key to work. John and I offered to bring him the spare key to try, so we joined William at the back entry, but he already managed to get it open. Florence went on to describe the discovery of Julia's body. Then came the testimony of forensic analyst John McFall. The prosecution's key witness. Please state your name for the court. My name is John Edward Whitley McFall. And your profession? I'm a professor of forensic medicine. I'm often called to crime scenes to determine evidence of the cause and time of death. And what did you determine of Mrs. Wallace's death? I believe she had been attacked while sitting in an armchair. She was struck once in the head, which knocked her to the floor. Then she was struck ten more times while lying on the ground. And what would have been the manner in which her murderer committed this crime? I would say, based on evidence, that the murder was committed in a frenzy. And how was Mr. Wallace's demeanor when you came upon the scene? It was... abnormal. Abnormal? What would make you say that? He was calm. 
detached. Detached, you say? Is that similar to, say, keeping an emotional distance? Objection! Leading the witness. Overruled. Go ahead, Professor. I might say the terms are interchangeable. Thank you, Professor McFall. That is all. You may remain, Mr. McFall. The defense has a few questions. You are a professor of forensic medicine, which I assume means you have several students to whom you impart your wise expertise. I teach aspiring forensic analysts, if that is what you're asking. I imagine you give them details regarding their curriculum? Details that they ought to remember for exams or situations in the field? Oh, yes. I would hope they would pay attention to my teachings. <laughs> and how would an aspiring forensic analyst remember the most important details of a lesson? With his mind, I imagine. <laughs> Yes, but the mind is an interesting organ, is it not? Its memory, for one, can fail from time to time or distort information. That has been known to happen, hasn't it? I suppose. What would you tell a student who had forgotten a key point of the day's discussion? I would tell him to write it down next time. Would you? That seems like a most logical action, does it not? Considering you agree how helpful a written note can be to the fallible human mind, I must pose this question. Why is it that during your examination of Julia Wallace, you did not record any notes? Ah, uh, I... I didn't need notes. I said only a few details to the inspector Details and... which you have changed since that evening. I beg your pardon? I don't understand. You originally said that the time of death was to be around 8 o'clock in the evening, but have since remarked in your deposition that it could have been closer to 6 p.m., which is a two-hour difference, Mr. McFall. I imagine a great deal can take place within a two-hour span. But if you had written it down, maybe you would have remembered. I did remember, but I considered all the evidence and changed And my... how did you determine time of death, Mr. McFall? I used rigor mortis. Is that all? Yes. Is it fair to say that rigor mortis is the most unreliable method of deducing time of death? Uh, I don't know. You don't know? Is this not your field of expertise? I use it often in my work. So you're to say that your work is likely to be unreliable? Objection, Your Honor. Overruled. Answer the question, Mr. McFall. No, I would not say that. I am only using logical deduction based on your previous statements. Let it be known and understood you used rigor mortis to determine time of death, which is the least reliable of all methods. Had you taken the time to analyze the body in a variety of ways and taken proper notes at the scene, we may not be in this situation at all. But I've concluded my questioning. Thank you. Cocky McFall left the witness box, his tail firmly placed between his legs. A slight victory for the defense, a public shaming for McFall. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. 
and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now let's continue the story. Friday, April 24th, the trial was in full swing. Spectators, especially women, treated the trial like it was the latest thrilling talkie on the silver screen. Women could be seen passing snacks and candies, valuable provisions to sustain their blood sugar levels during the long hours. Hopefuls waiting outside were constantly turned away by law enforcement. The trial had become an alluring spectacle, and everyone wanted to witness it. Especially today, because this was the day William took the stand. Mr. Wallace. Can you recall the conversation you had with your chess club colleagues, Stuart Beatty and James Caird, on January 22nd, just two days after the murder of your wife? We had many conversations that night. Yes, but this would be the one in which you asked Mr. Beatty about the time he received the call from Mr. Qualtrough on January 19th. All right. We were leaving the cafe after another club meeting, and I asked Stuart what time the call came in. And what did he say? He said 7 p.m. or shortly thereafter. Then what did you say? I asked him if he could possibly be more specific. Why did you do that? I figured he might be questioned at some point, and I felt that if he could remember a more specific time, it would help the case. You mean help you? No. I know how these things work. What things? Investigations, legal matters. I work for an insurance company. It is my responsibility to think about these factors. Accuracy is of the utmost importance. I see. Then what happened? I told him I had been cleared as a suspect. At this point, I thought I had been. And how did he respond? He was pleased. But he told me he didn't think I should discuss any details of the case except with the police. Smart man, this Mr. Beatty. The questioning went on for a while, but there was one moment that stunned William. It involved a theory regarding William and the Macintosh coat. It is a known fact that you love music, is it not? I enjoy the violin very much so. You have played often in your home, yes? Almost every other night if I could manage it. Have you ever played completely in the nude? I beg your pardon. Have you ever in your life played the violin in the nude? I have not. This question came as quite a shock to William and his defense team. Was it simply an attempt to throw William off? Or was the prosecution trying to paint William as a sexual deviant? Hammerd went on to explain where such a question came from. There is the issue of your Macintosh coat found underneath the victim. How was it that it ended up in this location? I don't know. Could it have been, Mr. Wallace, that it was the only item of clothing you were wearing when you committed this crime? Objection. Motion to strike from the record the statement, when you committed this crime. Sustained. Strike it from the record. Let us for a moment say you had been wearing this coat. And perhaps it was then thrown in the fire after the crime was committed, an attempt to burn away the evidence. But you panicked and shoved it under your wife's body instead. No, absolutely not. None of this is true. When William's attorney addressed this theory about the coat, he had a much more plausible theory. This business about the Macintosh is outlandish, to say the least. The accused has already admitted he does not walk around the house playing instruments in the nude like some mental patient. He is a well-respected, well-regarded member of the community and the British workforce. What is much more sane and logical is to assume that Julia put the Macintosh coat around her shoulders when she went to answer the door. It was chilly outside and she was suffering from a cold. 
After she let her killer inside, whom she most likely knew, she probably bent down to the fire, perhaps to shift a log, and the coat caught fire. Then the killer attacked her from behind. The coat fell, eventually getting trapped beneath her. Please consider that scenario and forgive my colleague's wildly inappropriate imagination. Saturday, April 25th, the last day of the trial. The morning began with Roland Oliver giving his closing remarks on behalf of William's defense. Note that some of his statement is verbatim from historical account. Members of the jury, there are two pivotal factors that will help you determine guilt or innocence. First, who sent the telephone message to Mr. Wallace? And second, at what exact time is it that the prosecution has determined Mrs. Wallace was killed? First of all, there is no evidence from any witness aside from the police speculation that Mr. Wallace phoned that night. So we cannot conclude that he made that call. Secondly, in regard to the time of death, let us review the evidence. Mr. McFall provided his opinion that the time of death was around 6 p.m., which we know to be incorrect, because the victim was seen alive by the milk boy, Alan Close, at roughly 6.40 p.m. Also, I urge you to ignore the statements regarding Mr. Wallace's demeanor the night of the murder. We cannot determine whether a quiet, detached demeanor means guilt or innocence. And it is foolish to think we can. You must also reject the preposterous theory regarding the Macintosh coat. Finally, as I'm sure you all know this in your hearts, but must recognize it in your minds, mere suspicion is hardly enough to convict a man and sentence him to death. It is hardly enough. Thank you. According to Oliver, the telephone call and the correct time of death were the two most important elements of the case. In his closing statement, Hammerd also mentions the phone call, but alludes to other factors as well. Let us readdress this important phone message. Remember that the accused admits to leaving his residence at 7.15 p.m. and that the call box is 400 yards from his house, just 400 yards, which would make it very convenient for him to place that call at 7.20. It is strange coincidences just as this one that raise and contribute to suspicion. But are they simple coincidences or the meticulous plans of a cold-blooded mastermind? The accused is a lover of science and of chess, two of the most logical and methodical passions a man can enjoy. And I will remind you that the actions of Mr. Wallace, the night of the murder, the same actions he referred to in his deposition, appear inherently methodical, speaking to the two tram operators of the time and his destination disturbing Mrs. Mather, who lived at 25 Menlove Gardens West, and asking the police constable what time it was, even though Mr. Wallace wore a watch. As to the question of time of death, I agree with my seasoned colleague. You can only convict this man if you have absolutely no shadow of a doubt that he is guilty. Now it was time for the judge to give his final words. He too had a message for the jury. Members of the jury, it is your utmost duty as citizens of this great country under King George V to consider the evidence and nothing else. This murder is one of the rarest cases I have ever come across, and so it especially deserves thorough and unbiased consideration. Let it be known that throughout this trial, neither party has uncovered or suggested a motive. That's right, no motive for William was ever addressed. 
Isn't motive one of the most important factors in a case? You would think so. Another reason this is one of the oddest murder cases around. And no mention of any other possible suspects. William was doomed from the start. Yes, at this point, the only other suspect we have considered was Richard Gordon Perry, who had worked with William at the Prue before he was fired for stealing. But the cops had brushed off that suggestion and claimed Perry had an airtight alibi. And it seems Justice Wright is the only one at the trial to even acknowledge this idea of other suspects. Members of the jury, I leave you with this question. Can you, beyond any reasonable doubt, assert that Mrs. Wallace was killed by this man and absolutely no other. Some believe the judge's instruction to the jury was him trying to sway them to an innocent verdict. There just wasn't enough concrete evidence to prove William's guilt. The jury will now retire to consider their verdict. It only took one hour for the jury to reach a conclusion. Members of the jury, have you agreed upon your verdict? We have. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty of this crime? Guilty. And that is the verdict of every juror. Yes. I require order in my court. You, William Herbert Wallace, have been convicted of murder by the jury. Have you anything to say? Only that I am not guilty. What else can I say? At this point, the clerk placed a black cap on the judge's head. This is done in British law whenever the judge passes a death sentence. In accordance with the law of the Crown, deemed so by the jury's verdict of guilt, I declare William Herbert Wallace to be sentenced to death. After being taken away to the Liverpool prison known as Walton Jail, William was stripped and given a gray uniform that signified he was to be executed. The execution was tentatively set for May 12th, 17 days later but would likely be pushed back if the defense chose to appeal the court's decision. And they did. Monday, April 27th, plans for an appeal were already in motion. A new fund was created to raise money for those costs. A couple of weeks later, on May 18, 1931, William found himself traveling in a car from the prison to the Court of Criminal Appeal at the Strand in London. He would later recount that the green countryside was a sight for sore eyes after being locked up. The presiding judge was Justice Hewart. He, with the help of two other judges, would determine William's fate. But first, Edward Hemmerd of the prosecution and Roland Oliver of the defense had to make their statements. Oliver went first. The most significant ground for this appeal is the utter lack of evidence. There is simply not enough to prove guilt. I might also report that the jury was as a whole very hostile and prejudiced towards the accused. The majority of jurors acted in a strange and aggressive manner, not consistent with logical and unbiased judgment. We would be doing a disservice, no, a disgrace to the Crown, by allowing a man to be put to death based on such shoddy information and unfounded suspicion. Therefore, we must reconsider the facts and give this man a fair trial representative of the integrity of British law. The next day, Oliver's opponent took the stage. My colleague's remarks yesterday were not indicative of the truth. The pieces of this murder fit together like a jigsaw puzzle, if I might use a visual analogy. I see it, and undoubtedly so did the jury. Their decision was based on the information presented. They fulfill their civic duty to the best of their ability. Because of this, the verdict should not be disturbed. Mr. Oliver, you are allowed a rebuttal. 
Thank you, Your Honor. I will restate what I so strongly know to be true. There is no fact, no series of facts, that prove that this man committed this crime, and in these circumstances, I ask that this appeal should be upheld and the man acquitted. At this point, a dead quiet fell over the room. The court will rise for a few minutes. The three judges left to confer. Forty-five minutes later, they returned. And once again, the room was filled with silence. Then William was ushered in. He looked a bit ill and exhausted and swayed slightly. But his eyes were locked on Justice Hewart. He would once again hear his decided fate. The judge's statement is taken verbatim from historical account. The conclusion to which we have arrived is that the case against the appellant which we have carefully and anxiously considered and discussed was not proved with that certainty which is necessary in order to justify a verdict of guilty. Therefore, it is our duty to take the course indicated by the statute to which I have referred. The result is that the appeal will be allowed and this conviction quashed. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now back to the story. After the reporters left in a flash to declare the news of the day, what happened next required no words. The officers responsible for William only nodded and smiled, letting him know he was free to go. William then walked out of the courthouse unbound by any chains or the promise of death. And re-entered civilization. Wearing his signature bowler hat, black overcoat, and gold-rimmed glasses, he emerged with his brother Joseph by his side. So, was this justice prevailing? Or was it the twist of fate reward for a clever killer? Whatever the case, one thing is for sure. The press had an absolute field day. Reactions to the appeal flooded newsstands, the majority in favor of the decision. The Daily Telegraph reported... The appeal tribunal has set free a victim of injustice with his character cleared. It seemed William had an army of supporters behind him, including members of the religious community. A day before the appeal, churchgoers and influential figures prayed at the Liverpool Cathedral for William's vindication. Which was interesting considering that William was an agnostic. The London Star wrote, Mr. Wallace of Liverpool has had a shattering experience. The subject of public prayers, condemned by a jury of his fellow men, he was finally acquitted by the Court of Criminal Appeal. It went on to say that his case is a triumph for him and all for British law. Some of the most coldly logical minds in the world decided in favor and gave us another case for pride in the finest legal system in the world. 
Even the bishop himself of Liverpool Cathedral weighed in. I am very glad that this appeal has been allowed. I have never felt satisfied that the evidence proved guilt. Well, there you have it, victory for William Herbert Wallace. But what was to become of him? Did this judicial triumph and newfound freedom inspire him to move to the Bahamas and sip Mai Tais with adventurous travelers and laid-back locals? <laughs> that would be my first instinct, but sadly, this wasn't the case for William. In fact, this event only gave him a brief reprieve from his ultimate fate. And even though the press was pleased with the decision, William's neighbors and others near his hometown shunned and criticized him. So he eventually moved away but not to the Bahamas. However, he did buy a bungalow. Did he? Yes, right on the Whirl Peninsula of Northwest England. Sounds like a step in the right direction. Yes, and he continued working at the Prudential Assurance Company. But then his kidney problems returned. Maybe the stress of the trial and being imprisoned aggravated his condition. Or maybe he was just severely ill and had been for a while. Well, if you'll remember, he only had one working kidney left and it was struggling. In December 1932, only six months after the appeal decision, William was in so much pain that he finally checked into a hospital. Surgeons performed an emergency operation, but it did not go well. For months, William was bedridden and either delirious or unconscious. He died on February 26, 1933, just a little over two years after the murder. He was buried in Anfield Cemetery in the same grave as Julia. Oh, okay. I know his conviction was overturned, but... Considering everything that happened, being buried with his wife seems a little strange, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a little morbid, maybe even distasteful, but that was the common practice back then. Even in death, both for the victim and the accused, the story does not end. That's right. There is still much to consider. There are some interesting events that happened in the years after the murder. Richard Gordon Perry, the man with the bloody baseball mitt in his car the night of the murder, had several brushes with the law in the years that followed. In 1932, he was found sitting in another man's car, supposedly trying to steal it. Then, in 1934, he and two others were charged with a carjacking and sentenced to three months in jail. In 1936, he enacted a much more heinous crime. After picking up a female acquaintance named Lily Fitzsimmons and taking her to a malt shop, he drove her to another location, where he assaulted her. But the court case was eventually dropped, and he never saw hard time for that. He spent the rest of his life as an alcoholic. One of the locals at a pub Perry frequented reported that Perry angered a lot of people and had a pretty arrogant manner about him. Also in 1966, when contacted by two authors working on a book about Julia's death, Perry said he would not discuss the Wallace case, not even for 2,000 pounds. If that's not enough, just two years after the murder, his former love, Lily Lloyd, secretly reached out to Hector Monroe, who had been part of William's legal team. She offered a sworn affidavit that she lied back in 1931 to cover for Perry regarding his alibi for the night before the murder, the night the Qualtro call came in. Does this prove Perry's guilt? Not quite, but it does tell us that Perry most likely asked her to lie for him, which would suggest guilt, or simply fear, on his part. Well, either way, it doesn't give much credibility to Perry or anything he said in his statement to the police. And his track record suggests he has inclinations towards crime. 
Maybe he would not go as far as murder, but we can't rule it out. If we're considering Perry as Julia's actual killer, let's talk about the RM Qualtro call. Could Perry have phoned the chess club? Absolutely, and here's why. Perry frequented the Cottle City Cafe for his drama club, so he could have had access to the schedule of matches for the chess club. So he could have seen William's name and the day and the time that he would be playing. That would mean he knew when to expect William out of the house. But how does that fit into the call being made from a phone booth so close to William's flat? One theory is that Perry staked out William's house. He obviously knew where it was because he had delivered insurance earnings there several times. Okay. So Perry watched until William left the evening of the murder. He waited until William was out of sight, and he walked to the phone booth. Then Perry made the call five minutes later and pretended to be this made-up Qualtro. And the fake address? A way to send William on a wild goose chase so Perry had time to kill Julia. But did Perry go there that night with a clear intention to kill Julia? That is a very good question. Or was it to rob William? And things just got complicated and Perry felt he had to kill her. So one theory is that Perry just went there to rob William, but he didn't take much from the stash, which makes me believe that there was something deeper going on. Yes, I have a couple of theories on that. Okay, go ahead. I think Perry and Julia were having an affair. Well, she did like younger men. Remember, William was almost 20 years her junior. And Perry had come to the house several times. He and Julia could have established a connection during those visits that eventually escalated. Right. So maybe there was a lover's quarrel or Julia was blackmailing him and Perry decided that he had to end the relationship by ending her. Well, that's one theory. What's the other? Well, considering William basically got Perry fired from the Prue, some believe Perry wanted to get revenge on William. So he thought killing his wife would send the strongest signal? Yes. Bottom line, Perry had motive where William does not. Exactly. That's why I don't think William did it. Me either. While the case mainly focuses on William and Perry as suspects, there's one more theory that emerged much later. This theory involves a pair of suspects. John and Florence Johnston, the next-door neighbors to the Wallaces. Remember them? Well, they were the two people who noticed William return the night of the murder. They watched as he struggled to get the back door of his flat open, which caused Mr. Johnston to offer to get the spare key and bring it to William. They were with William when he discovered the body. And something else we hadn't mentioned before. The Johnstons left to stay with their granddaughter the day after the murder. Hmm, Seems like strange or convenient timing. So the theory is that the Johnstons planned to rob the Wallaces for the insurance money that William had stashed in the house. They wanted to do this when no one was home, of course. So they watched and waited the night of the murder. They saw William leave, and perhaps Julia walked him out. And the Johnstons assumed she went with him, but she actually stayed. Thinking the house was empty, the Johnstons used the spare key they had to get in. This would account for the fact there was no forced entry. Once inside, they went for the insurance money, but Julia heard the commotion and found them stealing from her. They panicked. They couldn't let her turn them in. So they flipped on her and murdered her in a frenzy with a poker from the fire. This actually feels plausible. It does, doesn't it? A lot of the pieces are there. Key to get inside the house, motive to steal, then motive to kill. And in this scenario, we would assume that Mr. Johnston made the call claiming to be R.M. Qualtro. Right. Whoever the real murderer was, I'm confident that making the fake call to the chess club and posing as Qualtro was a key part of the plan. Basically... 
Qualtro is the other identity of the killer. Yes, exactly. And what's interesting about the Johnstons is they seemed very curious about William's return, almost as if they were waiting for him to discover something, like Julia's body. Plus, when questioned by the police, other neighbors said they didn't see anyone leave the house after the suspected time of death. That would make sense because the Johnstons live next door. Exactly. They could have snuck out the back door after the murder and went through the alley and right into their house undetected. An interesting theory indeed. It just amazes me that in this case, only one suspect was ever really considered. It's tragic, really. Now, my money is on Perry as the murderer. Considering his life of crime, his motive, the bloody baseball mitt? Yes, I'd have to agree, although I like the idea of the Johnstons, too. If they did it, they really managed to get off scot-free. So we're in agreement that William wasn't the true killer. Well, folks, now it's up to you. You've heard the facts in great detail. Who do you think is Julia's murderer? Do you think it was Perry, the fired insurance salesman who worked with William and had a motive to wreak revenge on him? Or do you believe William, a modest insurance salesman who loved tinkering around in his laboratory and playing chess in a cafe basement, is capable of such an atrocity? Or was it the Johnstons, who may have been desperate to get hold of William's stash of money? Or was it someone else? Someone never suspected, never considered? Think back on this case and all of its elements. It seems like the police and the prosecution were grasping at straws to convict William. The theory that William's passion for chess helped him accomplish a puzzling crime is more sensational than anything. And yet, it's that type of thinking that can turn innocent men into suspects, and suspects into false criminals. This case is one of the most baffling. There was a conviction, but not enough evidence to support it, which led to an appeal, which ultimately overturned the original verdict. Several journalists and novelists have eagerly tried to solve this one. But like a chess game without a victor, this story ends in a stalemate. And the victim never gets her justice. Will she ever? Perhaps the true killer accomplished exactly what he set out to. To enact the perfect murder. Checkmate. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll investigate the case of the Somerton Man. Tamam should. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Malo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Janice Leapart, Nick Masu, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, and Greg Polson.